You're listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast, now on Google Play. With Karen Butler, Senior Editor. Brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas. Hello, and welcome to the Healthy Insider Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Karen Butler, and joining me on the phone today is holistic veterinarian Chris Bassent. At the start of her career over 30 years ago, Dr. Bassent practiced traditional veterinary medicine, but seeing patient after patient that needed something other than traditional care could offer, she ventured into chiropractic, and from there, acupuncture and Chinese herbology. That led her to launch HerbSmith, Inc., an herbal supplement company providing natural solutions for the health and wellness of animals. She also founded the Simple Food Project, which features her limited-ingredient, freeze-dried whole food recipes for pets. Dr. Besant, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. So today, Dr. Besant and I are going to be talking about an ongoing investigation out of FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine, or CVM, where they're looking at a potential connection between diet and cases of a canine heart disease known as DCM, or canine dilated cardiomyopathy. FDA noted that the reports are unusual because DCM is occurring in breeds not typically genetically prone to that disease. Dr. Besant, can you share some details about the nutritional connection that FDA is looking into? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of the history behind it is in about 2014, the FDA started getting some um, reports of DCM occurring in dog breeds that usually don't. Um, And then veterinary cardiologists started to see that they had an increased incidence of dilated cardiomyopathy in breeds that normally don't, so um, don't have a genetic predisposition to it. So, for example, um, golden retrievers and Labrador retrievers, which usually do not have dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, So, These veterinary cardiologists, I think, also alerted the FDA, and then the FDA opened an investigation into the causes of dilated cardiomyopathy in these non-genetically prone breeds and what their relation is to taurine. So they've had a number of updates starting in June of 2018, so about a year ago, And we know a few things from their initial investigation. And what we know for sure is dilated cardiomyopathy, which is um, an enlargement of the heart, and that enlargement tends to make the chambers of the heart bigger. And by virtue of the chamber being bigger, the um, muscle is smaller and not as strong. And that dilated cardiomyopathy is happening in non-genetically prone breeds. So usually as a veterinarian, we would tend to see DCM in large breed dogs. So Great Danes, Wolfhounds, um, larger breeds. We're now what we're seeing from about the 2014 on, but particularly from 2018 on is a greater incidence in golden retrievers, in Labrador retrievers, in Australian shepherds, dogs that you would not normally see this. So that's the one thing that is definitely um, is striking. 
The other is that these dogs were eating grain-free dry kibble diets and that this unusual DCM was definitely linked to grain-free dry food and that these grain-free dry kibble foods were higher in legume content and especially peas and lentils and that the proportions of legumes, so peas and lentils, were higher in the diets that these dogs were eating. Um, some of these dogs had low blood taurine levels, but not all, and most of them were responsive to taurine supplementation. Um, the meats that were generally seen um, in these diets were kind of common meats. So it was chicken, lamb, salmon, um, fairly common, where originally it was thought that it might have been in more exotic meats, and that has proven not to be true. So we generally think that it's something to do with amino acid content that is affecting these dogs' hearts, but we don't know that for sure. So the FDA is doing a tremendous amount of research and case reports and and looking into what this link, um, what could be causing this link. Yes, so as you mentioned, I think it was 2014 that the investigation opened. Um, as of April 30th, 2019, FDA had received 524 case reports uh, involving 560 dogs because some homes had multiple dogs that were diagnosed with DCM. And in addition, there were other reports that came in, but they don't have an official diagnosis of the DCM. They just have heart problems. There could be more. Um, I also saw they have 119 dogs that died uh, in the reports, yeah. as well as 14 cats with five deaths. Yes. Yep. And in kitties, um, the dietary link between dietary taurine levels and DCM, dilated cardiomyopathies, in cats has been established a long time ago, so in the 1980s. And as soon as the pet food industry identified that it was a lack of taurine and they started supplementing cat foods with taurine, they almost eradicated the incidence of dietary dilated cardiomyopathy in kitties. So interestingly, in dogs, dogs are just a little different. Um, cats are pure carnivores, no question. So they need to get their taurine source from the food that they eat. Dogs are different. Dogs can survive on an omnivore diet. Although by looking at their teeth and all of the other components of a dog, you would say that they are carnivores as well, but they're able to convert um, cysteine and methionine into taurine within their bodies. So the AFCO guidelines, and AFCO is the organization that kind of um, determines what's considered complete and balanced within pet foods, doesn't have a requirement for taurine, but they do have a requirement for cysteine and methionine for dogs because dogs can convert that into taurine that they need. So the incidence of taurine deficiency in DCM and cats has been long established. In dogs, it really hasn't been. 
until lately have we started to see this difference. And it really kind of came about with the popularity of grain-free foods that were higher in legumes. So I noticed that your company, Herbsmith, recently launched a touring product geared toward heart health in canines. Did the FDA investigation lend any inspiration or the situation with cats, or is the canine heart health an increasingly common concern? You know, um, I'm a, I own Herbsmith. I develop all the products for Herbsmith, and it really stemmed from my holistic veterinary practice. And I kind of have my foot in both arenas, essentially. So I'm a veterinarian and, and trained in science, and, but I also am a pet food manufacturer, and so we make a lot of pet food. So I'm kind of looking at it from both perspectives. And as a veterinarian, what I heard is the chatter in the veterinary community about these unusual cases of DCM in non-genetically prone breeds. And thought, well, taurine is, is very safe. It's an amino acid. There's no harm if you get more than you need. And we developed Taurine Boost, the product that we have, based on targeted nutrition for heart health. And it really became this perfect example of how supplements and supplement feeding fill in the gaps. So as a pet parent, you think, okay, well, we know that there's a lot of research to continue. We don't have the answers to what's going on with this link between legumes and DCM. But knowing the FDA, knowing science, it's going to be years before we really have an answer as to why. But the one thing that really stuck out to me as a veterinarian is almost all the pets that had this dietary DCM improved when taurine was supplemented in their diet. And so we developed our taurine boost with taurine and L-carnitine, uh, EPA, DHA, and coenzyme Q10 as targeted nutrition for the heart. And I feel like as a pet parent, I'm not going to wait on my dog's life, which could be, you know, 10 years before we actually find out why this is happening, I'm just going to use something that's very safe, that if I give too much, they're going to use it as energy, and I'm going to start protecting my pet right from the get-go while I'm still watching to see what's going to happen with the research. So FDA first announced the investigation in July 2018, provided an update in February 2019, and in the last month, they've now issued a third status report, which for the first time included the names of the pet food brands most frequently named in DCM reports to FDA, as well as a breakdown of the dog breeds listed in those reports. Dr. Besant, can you provide any insight into FDA's process with something like this, like when they decide they're going to release that type of information or maybe what we can expect from them as things develop? Yeah, I would say that in, in my way of looking at it, it was this uh, information was the result of a really, of a system that's working well. So first we had pet owners making reports. Then we had veterinarians seeing an increased incidence, and they're alerting the FDA. And then the FDA has identified that there's an issue. 
and started responding to the report. So there is some criticism that the FDA jumped into it too soon, and, and I think the opposite. I think that they did a, a great job of identifying first that there was a problem. And once there was the, the identification of a problem, then they started to retrieve and collect reports and then start analyzing the data. So here we are a year from the time that they first told us about the issue, and you can see that the amount of reports have dramatically increased in 2018 and into 2019 because the FDA made the public aware. Ideally, it's identifying what's going on, it's collecting all this information and this data, and searching for what exactly is going on and determine the cause so that we can have some correction. So to me, I think the process was perfect. They did exactly what they should have done and we have been provided with a tremendous amount of information from their first year of work. But knowing the FDA, knowing um, how science proceeds, this is gonna take some time. They're gonna proceed carefully there, they have contacted many um, pet food manufacturers. They're in close connection with veterinary cardiologists. They're really, I think, taking a good, hard, honest look and going through it very systematically to determine exactly what's going on. So they're going back to the sources of the ingredients that were put into these foods. They're really looking... I personally feel that it's not about vilifying any manufacturer or even vilifying any ingredient, but it's trying to figure out what the heck is going on and and we need to correct this. And some of the criticism is that it's a very small proportion of dogs. So, so there's 77 million pets in the world being fed with commercially processed pet food and 500 to 600 have gotten sick, 100 have passed away. So they're saying that the incidence is really low, 0.001%. But to me, as a veterinarian, as a pet parent, if, if it's my dog that passes, so that those family of the 119 dogs that passed away from this, it's 100%. So I look at this as this is the tip of the iceberg, and I'm thrilled at the progress and the process and the really call, calling into question manufacturers and pet food sourcing as well as um, pet parents as to what's going on with this. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, that CM safety reporting portal makes it so easy online, whether you're a veterinarian, a pet owner, food manufacturer, a researcher, you know, anybody who has that information can make those reports. So I agree. Um, that is a pretty great turnaround to have all that information within a year. Yeah. So you offer a line of pet food products, as we talked about. You're on, you're on both sides of this and, and the veterinary input. Um, I'm sure you can imagine what a challenge it is to navigate a situation that's getting so much press. Do you have any advice for, for fellow pet food manufacturers, whether they've been named by FDA now or they offer green-free products or maybe they're just in the industry and seeing all this unfold? You know, um, 
I tend to take everything in, in as positive a light as possible. And, and without a question, the system worked the way it should, and we have an issue. And denying the issue is silly. And so it, admitting that we have an issue here, that something is going on, be completely transparent. And I would say of the um, pet food manufacturers that have been named in this report, they have all put statements on their website. They have all um, discussed adding taurine to their, to their recipes. They have um, tried to communicate and have transparency, which I think is exactly what pet parents want. And I think it's about transparency. I think it's about addressing pet parents' concerns and trying to work together to find a common goal and to provide the healthiest pet food that we can for, for pets. And I would say that the majority of, or all of the companies are great companies trying to produce really great products, really good products, and that um, nobody's doing this intentionally by any means. Um, and we've got a problem and let's work together to try to figure it out. What I would say to pet food manufacturers right now is just add taurine to your recipes. We, we don't know if it's the quantity of taurine or a change in the inability of dogs to make taurine, but what we do know is that pets that were supplemented with taurine improved. And so adding taurine to your diet is not going to cost that much. It's very safe. It's, um, it's adding one ingredient that doesn't necessarily change your whole formulation. And it just makes prudent sense to me until we figure out what exactly is going on. Um, I personally would say that you couldn't go wrong reformulating and decreasing the amount of legumes that are in your diet. And I would say that it's peas and lentils have really been called out as the um, ingredients to watch. And so if you can decrease the amounts of peas and lentils in the diet, that's got to be a good thing. And ideally, taurine comes from meat. And taurine is um, an ingredient, uh, amino acid that you find in meat sources, particularly heart, but you also find it in seafood. So adding more meat to your to your diet would also be a good thing. And I can appreciate that part of the reason that you have grain-free food is they were trying to find a source of protein, but plant source of protein, that would still produce a product that could be sold to the average pet parent. And so adding more meat to the diet is definitely expensive. And we you know, any business still needs to to make a profit in the end. But those would be my suggestions, and I absolutely would say add taurine to your recipes. There's no negative to it, and it does seem like the majority of pet food dry kibble manufacturers out there have are already starting to do that. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure some of them are like, easy for you to say reformulation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah they'll just... <laughs> So get yep, it done. In the ideal world. <laughs> right. Um, so consumer standpoint, very interesting. I had my dog into the vet. Uh, it was a new vet. I had switched. And he first question he asked me was what I was feeding her. And when I mentioned the brand name, he said, 
have you heard about the, you know, and he jumped right into it. So it, it is reaching consumers and veterinarians in all levels. Do you feel like, have you seen any craze among consumers and, and um, vigilant pet parents? Or uh, do you think we're, if the information that we're getting is enough that it's kind of keeping it at bay for now? I would say there's definitely more awareness than there has been in the past. And the veterinary industry is absolutely leading that. And and I do think that there is enough information for us to start making some changes in our pet's diet. Is it um, going back to a high grain diet um, with lots of meat meals? I, I would not say that. What I would say is be proactive versus reactive. So we know that taurine comes from meat and seafood. So adding some meat and or adding some seafood to your pet's diet is always a great thing. So if you're having some salmon or you're having chicken breast, add that back into your dog's diet as well. So they still may get the the diet, the kibble that they you've been feeding, but then add some meat to it or add some seafood to it because that daily supplementation with meat or seafood is going to raise their taurine levels naturally from whole food. Um, you could also supplement with taurine. So we produce a supplement that you could add to their food because I think changing your pet's food to another food, again, sounds simple, but you're feeding it for a reason. And maybe that is the pet food that your dog does best with, but yet you're still concerned. So adding a supplement, a taurine supplement, or adding some meat to their diet is a great way to cover you until we figure out exactly what's going on. Um, and then I would say, look at your ingredient deck. So you may be feeding a food that has already started adding taurine to their recipe. And they're not going to call it out necessarily, but what you'll see is the next time you go in to purchase, read the ingredient deck. So is taurine added to the ingredient deck? And if it is, they're going to be adding at most likely the level that would be beneficial to your pet. So if your grain-free food is already adding taurine, that is definitely a plus. And then the other is look at the ingredient deck. And is legumes such as peas and lentils or even potato really high on the ingredient deck? So when you look at the, the recipes that were called out, as having the highest incidence, peas and lentils were second and third and fourth on the ingredient deck. And then they were mentioned a number of times in different forms. So for example, you could have, it could be listed as pea and then pea fiber and pea flour and pea powder. On an ingredient deck, all those can be listed separately. And so even though it's listed three times, that's a substantial amount of peas. So you really want to look at the ingredient deck for taurine and look at the ingredient deck and see how high peas and lentils are in the ingredient deck. Because of course the ingredient deck is from the highest quantity in the recipe to the lowest quantity. And if it's in the top five or even top ten, you know it's a substantial amount of that formula. And then I would say that when you look at the pet food industry, originally the lower end foods were, were very high grain. So it was 
a lot of corn, a lot of wheat, a lot of soy, rice. And dogs are carnivores. They're scavenger carnivores. They have long um, canine teeth for a reason to be able to rip and tear meat and to chew up bone. That is what dogs should do. So feeding them like a goat where they're getting a lot of grain is not good for dogs. And then the pendulum has kind of swung to the opposite direction, saying that, okay, we're not adding grain, but we're still going to be a high starch diet. So we're going to add pea and potato and lentils and try to get protein from a plant source rather than from a meat source. So to kind of go back to a high grain diet that is really high in meat meals, but yet they've added all the nutrients back into it as a heavily processed diet is in my mind not the best thing either. That's kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So yes, there's problems with grain-free diets, but that doesn't mean that high grain diets are appropriate for dogs either because they're carnivores. That is a good point. Um, I read it was, I think it's over 90% of, of the reports stated a grain-free diet, but of course they did have reports that included dogs that had eaten grain-containing foods, vegetarian, vegan, formulations, um, and not just the kibble, but canned, raw, home-cooked. So um, certainly the discussion centered around the grain-free, but there are other diets that, that have been listed in there. And I was curious what you think, because a lot of the, we talk about the humanization of the pet food industry and how the trend really follow, you know, maybe two, three years, sometimes even less of what's really popular in the human nutrition. So grain-free, of course, was huge. Plant-based protein is just blowing up on the human side. So people are wanting this for their, for their pets. Have you had concerns through the years as you've seen these trends kind of unfold and, and mirror on the human side that they're not all translatable perhaps? Absolutely. You know, I would say that humans are omnivores and dogs are carnivores. And so can we um, trans transpose some things like um, clean food is good for dogs as, as well as it's good for people? Absolutely. Can we transpose that um, vegan, vegan diets in humans are okay? And are vegan diets okay for carnivores? They're just not. Um, and so there are some trends in humans that, in human nutrition, that I think don't apply, and then there are some that do. Um, so one was this concept of boutique pet foods. And um, originally when this research or when this investigation started with the FDA, it got identified as boutique pet food brands as well as exotic meats and grain-free. And actually that's really um, shown not to be the case. So um, it really isn't about boutique pet food manufacturers because of the which what we just received recently, when you look at the pet foods that were called out as the primary um, problems, the majority of it is owned by big companies. So, for example, Blue Buffalo was called out as having well, it's, it's having a, a number of cases 
where they were eating their food, so 31 cases. And that's owned by General Mills. California Naturals is owned by Procter & Gamble. Natural Balance and Rachel, um, Rachel Ray's Nutrish is owned by Smuckers. Neutro, which is on the list, is owned by Mars. So really, when you look at it, it's, it has nothing to do with boutique, small pet food manufacturers. It's the big guys as well. Um, and when you go to the exotic meats, it really wasn't exotic meats. The number one meats that were identified in the diets were um, chicken, lamb, and salmon. So those are very common. Grain-free, absolutely. And the grain, and kind of the idea behind grain-free is that there aren't grains there, but that doesn't mean there aren't there isn't high starch and there isn't plant protein. But instead, they used peas and legumes as their protein source. And to your point, a lot of the brands that were listed would be considered a super premium brand. So it's not a matter of the food not being expensive or being quality or using, you know, organic, any of those things. I mean, really, every pet brand is at risk for a PR nightmare at any stage of the game, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and unfortunately, in this situation, it actually, I think the reason that the super premium were called out is because of the nature of dilated cardiomyopathy. So I think that the, the population of pets, so the, the data that we have gotten is very slanted towards the type of pets and the pet parents. So um, dilated cardiomyopathy is this enlargement of the heart chambers and a weakening of the heart muscles. And so the first symptoms that you see are just lethargy. So they're more tired. The pets are more tired than they were before. They don't have the energy to race around and play, so they stop playing with their toys that they used to. They can't go for walks like they did. Um, eventually, it continues on into a congestive heart failure where you start to get backup of fluid into the lungs, and then you get coughing and difficulty breathing and um, a larger abdomen because you're using muscles to be able to breathe. But the earliest signs are very subtle. And so this is not the sort of issue where you give this food for a week and notice, oh my gosh, they're different. This is the sort of issue that you give that food for years and slowly but surely the heart becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. So the sort of pet parent that would identify that is a proactive pet parent. So they're somebody that's very involved with their pet, that really cares about their pet, and they're using grain-free because they've been fed the super premium marketing that this is the best, that this, if you love your dog, you're going to feed them grain-free. So the sort of pet parents that are identified in this um, research is really those proactive pet parents that not only can identify it, they can identify that their dog is having a problem, that are, they've already bought into the idea that grain-free is better, so they're feeding grain-free because they're trying to do better, but they're also the sort of pet parents that would go to a veterinary cardiologist. 
And all of putting those three things together is the reason why we see so many golden retrievers overrepresented. It's not necessarily that golden retrievers are more prone to this than another breed is. I think that golden retriever owners are proactive pet parents. They're educated. They're proactive. They're on Facebook groups. They're talking to each other and they're um, telling their friends that have golden retrievers what to look for. So I think that the population of pets and pet parents that we see identified in this group is really slanted based on how proactive they are, that they bought into the whole grain-free is better, and that they could understand the subtle signs of DCM. Not saying that's all of them by any means, but I would say that there's probably many pets out there that are getting fed a higher grain diet, and in that high grain diet is meat meals. Because the two things that we know for sure about taurine is that taurine is highest in meat, and there is no taurine in legumes. There is no taurine in grain. There just isn't. And so if you're feeding a high grain diet versus a high legume diet, it doesn't matter. You're not getting taurine from the food. The second thing that we really know about taurine is that it is easily damaged through moist heat. And so if you're making a meat meal, in order to make a meat meal, it's a rendered product that is cooked and cooked and cooked and cooked and then dried out into a brown powder that then goes into an extruder to be made into kibble. So it's subjected to a tremendous amount of moist heat. And that is going to damage taurine levels as well. But I would say that people that are feeding low-end, high-grain kibble, that meat meal is their main source of meat in there, probably are also experiencing some decrease in cardiac function or decrease in myocardial or the muscle of the heart function, but they're not identifying it because because they're not going to a veterinary cardiologist, they're not being proactive, and they may not even be identifying the early signs of DCM. That makes a lot of sense. It sure helps to get the veterinarian perspective on this. <laughs> well, I do want to note there have been no recalls, and FDA has said the results of this study are inconclusive. They are laboring away at that, and they, they have promised to keep the public informed, which, as Dr. Besant said, they've been doing a great job at. So we will keep an eye on the unfolding story. Dr. Besant, was there anything else you wanted to mention in closing about the, the situation? You know, uh, um, uh, kind of a couple of things. Um, one is that you know, we're all passionate about our pets and we're passionate about nutrition for our pets. And nobody says, I feed my dog bad food. Um, so we are all, including myself, jumping to conclusions that that might not be true. And unfortunately, research takes time. And eventually, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And We'll know more as to what exactly is happening, but right now it's still really early ongoing in the research, although we know a few strong features. Um, 
as as you can imagine, I'm a believer in supplementation because if we're going to be feeding our pets shelf-stable food, there are some things that we need to supplement to make sure that they're getting all that they need to most replicate what they would get in their natural wild environment. So to me, not only did the FDA do a great job of identifying this and responding to it and are working on it, but it is also a great um, example how supplementation can help fill in those gaps. And I, as a veterinarian, that's kind of my role is to see where are gaps happening and how could we use supplements to to bridge that gap until we know more. And a taurine supplement is absolutely that. Um, the third thing that I wanted to add is that um, what's different between grains and legumes? And I think the, the biggest difference, you go back to farming. And when, when a farmer wants to harvest their peas or their lentils, they do what is, what is called crop desiccation. So they spray their field with glyphosate or Roundup, and then seven days later, all the plants are dead, and they can collect up all the peas and all the lentils at the same time. And it's a great thing for farmers, but what it does do is it dramatically increases the glyphosate levels in the peas and the lentils. And if you look at the research, grain-free foods, grain-free pet foods, have the highest levels of glyphosate in them. So that's a connection that you got to almost look at, as well as glyphosate has cardiotoxic effect. And glyphosate also damages methionine in the plant. So could there be a cardiotoxic effect of the glyphosate that is in the lentils and the peas those are the sort of things that the FDA are looking into. And that's the sort of thing that, that hopefully we'll know in the next year or so if, if that could be a component to it. Well, you heard it here first. That is the first that I had heard of that. So, boy, you know, very it, complex issue. It really is. And, I, and, I, and we have great people, amazing cardiologists, um, fabulous nutritionists, of course, dedicated people at the FDA that are really um, focused on this and looking at all the different possibilities that could be occurring. Yes, huge shout out to them. And I echo the shout out for pet supplementation. Um, also, NASC, we're always happy to uh, mention the National Animal Supplement Council, a great organization for uh, if you are a supplement producer, work with them and they will make sure that you have your game on when you're presenting products to the marketplace. Well, Dr. Bissent, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today to shed some light on this important topic, and we will continue to be talking about it and let our audience know how FDA's investigation unfolds. Thank you so much, Karen. It was a joy to talk with you. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the health and nutrition industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud account. This episode has been brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas.